Eric, uh, here with Tom. Uh, welcome Welcome. to Dead Cat. I just got back from Miami a couple days ago. I was there for some of the Art Basel stuff. I interviewed Keith Raboy at uh, uh, the pre-money conference that was hosted by 500 Global. Is 500 Global, by the way, like the renaming of 500 startups? What is? Yeah, yeah, they rebranded. Like, I feel like everybody missed it. Um, Sort of weird because I feel like 500 startups was so known, but Pretty I think clear. I, I knew exactly what that meant. Yeah, I think they're trying to do more growth. I, I do think a strength of theirs is sort of that they invest all over the world. So there's how much has had to do to, how much has had to do with the implosion of Dave McClure and their need to like separate themselves from what he had built. Yeah, you you really get right to it. I mean, he was definitely sort of. I asked somebody, you know, like, did he come up at their LP meeting? Because an LP meeting before, and it, it didn't seem like he was coming up explicitly. I mean, my sense is Dave has been buying out stakes in a bunch of 500 companies. So even though he's he wasn't there and is, you know, kept sort of at bay, he's very much like in the ecosystem still. Um, I I... I think we're in this interesting point. I mean, Katie wrote the story. Right, yeah. It's a shame she's not on today. By the way, we should tell our listeners, Katie at the last minute had to bow out because breaking news in the DOJ front uh, around gerrymandering. So that's why it's just your regular host, not guest host. Not not special guest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dave, I don't know. I, I can't make the declaration, but I do feel like some of the lightly canceled people in Silicon Valley, you know, I'm not going to be the one to beat the drum that they they shouldn't be able to. Well, that's a whole different topic. I was just wondering if the renaming of the company had to do from them saying like, "Well, look, that was his project." Yeah, he clearly I, I do wonder. Flamed out in a way that doesn't reflect well on the brand. Anyway, uh, but Miami, Miami, it was fun. I mean, it, there was so much traffic. <laughs> I tweeted about it a- afterwards. You know, that it was just like sitting in Uber all day. Like everybody's sort of saying Silicon Valley should relocate to Silicon Valley. You know, one of the Founders Fund guys tweeted that and the, you know, Miami mayor retweeted it like I'm here to help. And then all these Miami people were arguing in my mentions about whether Miami really does have the infrastructure or not. I think many people uh, don't think so. But beside besides the traffic, I mean, it was just, it does feel like, you know, feels like the pandemic's barely there. I mean, that's true in a lot of these sort of <laughs> even though it like cities. resurfaces every three I know. months. Yeah, nobody in, like, cares. A ferocious I mean, way. Well, know, that to you, me was. I mean, we're we're just over a year now from the initial mayor of Miami tweet. How can I help? That quote unquote kicked it off, right? And that at least exactly like, got these people out of their shells to start talking only about tech in Miami. But uh, the sense that I got talking to people in December of 2020 about it was like, yeah, I think they really like it because of no taxes and they don't really care about the pandemic. Out well, there. I, I interviewed Keith. I mean, and I, I prodded him a little bit on this point. I mean, he basically says that he and his husband set like a threshold point on reasonable taxes, you know, so they wouldn't move to Virginia, but they were willing to move to places, you know, they had more tax maybe than Florida. And then mm-hmm. they sort of decided among that. And I, I find that believable. But yeah, certainly certainly taxes are a big... I mean, yeah. the dude had tons of exits. I mean, DoorDash went public, a firm went public. I mean, he just... He has a lot of money coming in, so taxes are top of mind. Right. That's the reason to choose Florida over Virginia. 
But the the from a pandemic standpoint, everything's open. Everyone's just chilling. Right. I mean, the hotel lobbies, it's so funny to go to a hotel and like you know, New York or something like that where you're wearing the mask and then Miami where, you know, there are no masks in hotel lobbies. I mean, Keith was saying, you know, like he had to wear a mask, you know, because like the 500 conference, I'm sure they had like some organizer that's like, you know, he had to wear a mask briefly there. And he was like, this, you know, I've only had to wear a mask, like, you know, in doctor's offices or something, you know, he's, it goes against his message a little bit that nobody's making you wear a mask in Miami because he had to wear it leading up to the speaking at the conference. What would you say is the overlay between, you know, the Web3 or crypto aficionados and the people who have no interest in like health department regulations and suggestions on uh, mask wearing? Uh, I, I don't I don't know that there's a perfect. Yeah, okay. I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, there was, it was Web3. I mean, crypto was just ubiquitous. I mean, it was super interesting after... The panel, you know, some some guy comes up to me and is, I mean, super earnest. And I, I, you know, I'm, I think it's an interesting project, and you really do get the sense that there's real like brain power behind some of these crypto projects in a way that's, you know, reminiscent of you know social media many 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 years ago, yeah, uh, or right or sort of the on demand econ- economy more recently. So it gives me, I feel like that alone gives me the most optimism about the crypto That smart space. people are working on it. But did you, I feel like it's the responsibility of journalists going to these conferences now to come back from it with a changed worldview and perspective on the entire movement. Like you have to have some subnotary article in which you say <laughs> like, after four days here in which I talk to a dozen people in a lobby, I get it. Or I think this is the greatest folly. Like you can't come back from it being like, well, some good, some bad. Like it reminds me of, I mean, you you wrote a thing about it, so I'm sure you'll you'll, you'll say it now. But it reminds me of a couple of years ago when you, you know what VidCon is. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It's really yeah. influencer sort of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the creator streamers. influencer. Yeah. yeah, I mean, YouTubers started off as mostly in Anaheim, and there would be like a yearly column coming out from reporters being like, "Oh, oh, I get it. My 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 mind has been warped. I didn't understand how big it was." Like how important YouTube was. But they were right. That, that's true. Yeah, to a degree. I mean, we can we can talk about that at a different time. But, but either way, the point was that like journalists had to be like you know red pilled uh, after they came back from these things. And so is that is that you? I mean, because you came in not been, necessarily no, I'm, skeptical. I'm, so yeah, I'm not. That's, I'm pretty bullish. Would you have gone if you weren't asked to interview Keith? How about that? No, no. And they, I mean, they paid for my flight. And I mean, it was good to go. I mean, what? You're, I was just. No, thank you, know, you for the disclosure. Yeah. It's fine. No, I mean, but I'm glad I went. I mean, it, they set up the conference during sort of Art Basel. Honestly, I don't, I don't even know what like people were in town for Art Basel so I could see a bunch of people. But it's not like, you know, I saw public art, but I wasn't really proactively like going to galleries or whatever. So it's funny for me to claim I was at Art Basel and really I was at this sub conference. Anyway, totally beside the point. But, Oh, the other tangent I wanted to go on was just the point that I feel like there's this interesting thing where writers are getting pushback for being open to crypto at all. You know what I mean? Pushback from who, though? I can never tell. It's just like they tweeted out something vaguely positive about the movement. Well, like Casey, a platformer, it seemed like, you know, he rationalized and people sort of got angry with him. And the Kevin Roos piece in the New York Times where he sort of gave a very descriptive descriptive coverage of NFT NYC. It felt like he got pushback for that. 
And Ryan Broderick has been writing about this some. I mean, it just feels like people are very, you know, a certain set of like leftist types online are just like trying to combat sort of media euphoria about a new trend. But it's just like, it's fun. I mean, I, I think it's smart to like sort of tease out sort of the promise, you know, without promising that something's going to happen. The leftist part of it is kind of strange to me because, you know, most of the people that I talk to about it will make like a very collective argument about the value of it, right? I mean, decentralization is supposed to push away from monopoly and it's supposed to push away a concentration of power by a few tech firms. So I mean, you can argue whether or not that's like to the benefit of a leftist movement and the idea of like, well, I mean, but crypto is trying to financialize everything, you know, in some ways the internet's free and now they want everything to have a price. But, you know, looking at from another perspective, people are producing content for free and not getting paid for it. That seems super unfriendly to workers. You know, if we found out creative ways that people could own uh, the things that they create, I don't know. That seems fairly progressive to me. It seems like it's a pretty it's a pretty easy elision between what crypto and decentralization offers and what like a leftist worldview would agree to. Like it it doesn't seem like it has to be at odds with it. Aside from the fact that there is financialization behind it and it does create like a market behind everything. Right. And and, and assigns and the, the pure core, financial value. At the core yeah. a lot of the people talking about web3 and crypto are just like very hopeful that coins that they already own are going to go up in value right. and the actual utility of them is pretty uh, secondary and is more of a marketing uh, channel to inflate the value of their holdings than anything else. And right. I, I think that's a true, obvious, obviously true critique. And then lots of people going into starting companies around these coins or NFTs are just seeing that you can get the money before you do the work, which is you know obviously just like a huge incentive for fraud and failure. So I think that's all true. I just think there'll be successes uh, despite that. Explain to me your your disagreement with Max Reed's piece, because I read it just before we started recording. And his argument is essentially, well, he was just trying to do like an explainer almost of like here. Are, he was trying to create a framework. Right, right. And basically he was saying Web3, you can either say you agree that it is a revolutionary new form of what you know, the internet and community, online community can offer, or you can say it's just pure hype and it's pushed by people like Andreessen Horowitz and other big moneyed investors that want to see it come into action, like into reality, because that as investors would benefit them. And and then his take was basically like, what if you just don't want to have to engage with it at all, essentially? Well, I I think he was floating the possibility that you could be Bullish on Web3, not because you believe in the technology, but because you believe in the power of Silicon Valley to make it happen through economic and cultural power. And basically, it was trying to separate the idea of bullishness, bullishness and bearishness from like, you know, a rah-rah versus like a skepticism or moral approbation about the technology. And so his point was that he can hold a position that he thinks Web3 is going to matter, not because it's a great technology, but because firms like Andreessen Horowitz can make it happen. And then he can say he's skeptical about the value of Web3 and why we're sort of being led along uh, the path to it. 
Right. But and your and your disagreement with it is that tech fundamentally can't force something like they can't make fetch happen. Yeah, they're not just that because cool. they're <laughs> right. They're not. Right. I mean, they're rich, but like again, I, you know, the the piece sort of concludes with the point. My rebuttal concludes with the point that you know they tried this with Clubhouse. You know, they tried to bring all the power they could, all the cultural power, money, you know, whatever, to make it work, and it seems like it's struggling as Insider has written. And that really like the power of technology, and this has been my position, you know, for most of my time now covering Silicon Valley, that the power of these tech billionaires is the actual platforms they control, that the actual technology itself is super powerful, that, you know, people are addicted to their phones, they can't give it up. People complain, the very people, reporters who complain about technology are extremely addicted to it. And the only thing that will replace their current addiction is a better technology that, you know, is even more powerfully manipulative of our psychology. And so whether Web3 matters or not is really a function of whether it's a better technology than what we have today and whether we're, you know, psychologically hooked into it more completely than whatever we're using today that it replaces. Right. It's either more addictive or it solves a problem that we are trying to solve uh, and and the solution is elegant and useful useful by the masses, but also I, I think that people give too much credit to the individuals, like like a great man of history within an industry, to be able to push a specific technology or movement. Single, like like Facebook was going to happen whether or not Mark Zuckerberg existed, right? There was you know with the uh, at you know advent of. I mean, I don't know the fucking internet. I mean, just people being able to wanting to connect with each other. And then really what makes it take off in a hugely valuable way is, you know, the shrinking of computers to handheld devices. There, there was just an obvious next step that like within these devices, people are going to want to connect with each other on the backs of the infrastructure that the internet created. Uh, and I don't think whether or not, you know, Excel put money into Facebook that many years ago would have forced this to happen one way or the other when it wouldn't have. I, I agree with that. Uh, the only thing I think you agree with this is that obviously then once it happens, given the power of network effects, Mark Zuckerberg personally is extremely influential because he happens to control this technology that's hard to replicate a billion times over because people only want to join so many net networks. So while he may have been the one to move first, if he hadn't, somebody else might have done it. It's still super he has a lot of control over it now because of how it's centralized. Think about all the failed products that Facebook has put out that they've hoped to redefine the company in the past, right? right? Like all the different apps that they build, that they put out that no one even remembers anymore. I think we agree. I'm just saying if if the, in apps where they succeed to build the core features that make them work and become addictive and useful and all that, there are lots of sort of secondary decisions that don't sort of really change that one way or the other that then Mark Zuckerberg has the power to influence. Here's my question too, which, which Max starts to deal with a little bit. And he links to a few other articles that I found interesting, like by Adam Davison, uh, who's like a big crypto bull uh, or a Web3 bull right now, which is like, what is the need to ascribe morality to this technology right now? Like whether or not it's good or bad. That seems to be like underpinning a lot of the arguments. Is that like, it's not enough to say, I think it's bullshit because I am, you know, this is my take or I'm taking a stance on the future, but also like, and it is a bad thing. Well, I feel like people hate the the tech fatalism, which is sort of what I'm talking about, which yeah. I used to scoff at when I came at, into Silicon Valley, which is just sort of, 
if the technology is good, people are going to adopt it and there's really nothing you can do. I mean, that that's a morally neutral thing, I think is understandably disturbing to some people. But I just think having giving it a moral layer and saying it's terrible, you're just not going to be able to scold enough people away from working on a technology that people then can't resist. <laughs> right. Back to the Miami conference, how did you kind of gauge the optimism there? Because that to me has been like the most compelling aspect of Web3 beyond like just, you know, the complications of its intrinsic value. It's like, as the people that are working on it really think it's going to be a great thing. And I feel like all the optimism in Silicon Valley that had once been funneled toward, you know, whatever, social media or self-driving cars or, or name the next advancement seems to have coalesced uniquely within uh, within Web3 or crypto, whatever you want to call it. And I mean, you can be cynical to that and say like, uh, you know, these, you know, fucking blue skyers don't know what they're talking about. And, you know, they've just found a new thing to be wrong about uh, or, or, or naive about. I find it kind of interesting. It's like, well, you know, we can, we can embrace some element of the optimism. I mean, did, did it seem like a particularly optimistic crew out there? Yeah, it's it's definitely more optimistic. I mean, you'll hear... I mean, the fucking good morning thing, right? Like it's baked right. into the ideology. Right. And, and I do think, you know, people would say sort of shunning the progressivism allows them to be less, you know, self-flagellating, more optimistic. And that that's certainly what the sort of Keith strain would say about Miami. I mean, I, I, I thought there was an interesting, and I talked about this in the newsletter, just sort of... Par- two parallel panel universes. You know, on the one hand, uh, Balaji Srinivasan spoke. He was, you know, <laughs> I guess you would put him in the optimistic. He spoke by video conference. Not only by video conference, he made it sound very cloak and dagger. Like he was in an <laughs> well, undisclosed just, location. They, they, I, I was being, you know, they, they didn't the... say where he was. They were like in Southeast Asia. It was just sort of like, you know, I don't know. There was nothing. It was just funny because he's yeah, like no, we're obsessed, not here to dox him. obsessed with, uh, yeah, exactly. Privacy and all that. So yeah. it fit in sort of his message. But, you know, even though he sort of represents the camp that wants to be more optimistic, you know, he's obsessed with woke culture, you know, it's very, I mean, he has a fascinating framework, which he calls BTC, NYT, and CCP, you know, Bitcoin, New York Times, Chinese Communist Party, which to Uh him represent, you know, sort of different extremes on the political map. And he doesn't, it might sound like, oh, he's in BTC, but he he professes to want to be in some some, some midpoint between those. But, But anyway, my point is, you have sort of Balaji talking about wokes, you have Keith Raboy talking about like pattern matching, you know, and and clearly from his Twitter, you know, and he's he's donating to Republicans, you know, he's just he's very much not with sort of the leftist political movement. And then you have these other panels where it's like, you know, you have diverse VCs and you have sort of the Miami locals who are all talking about including Miami residents and all that and sort of much more progressive politics. And it did feel like they existed in sort of two total different universes, which were not really required to reconcile or or fight with each other. Uh Uh-huh. But explain to me more about Balaji. Is this Balaji still talking about his issue with the New York Times as, uh, you know, a misleading organization that is anti-tech and yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not new. Okay. Right. I mean, it's still... So it's like a ranking. There's like at the top BTC, like that is like a lawful good and... Uh, and New York Times is like you know, chaotic evil. CCP is about control. You know, it's sort of the fascists. And then in terms of democracy, you know, 
see, uh, uh, he, he actually explains it well. I mean, the thing is the guy is smart. Like I, I, I'm not discounting him at all. Like, and I actually, you know, I think he's more interesting than most people. Um, he blocks me. So now I have to go to incognito mode to find the tweet. Uh, because he blocked me. Why did, why did he, block he blocked you? me because I reached out through a friend of his for an interview request with him. And no, on that and basis, as a member of the he, media, you're right. He, he has to go direct, but it, there is a, you know, hypocrisy <laughs> that it's like, oh yeah. He has to go direct except to the people that he would theoretically could reach directly. <laughs> uh, yeah. So you I have mean, to go indirectly just, to get to just, him. Just, just the idea that people think that you can profess to be a free thinker while, blocking people because they just asked to interview. It's not like I was bullying him to interview, you know. Anyway, communist capital, CCP, you must submit. Woke capital, NYT, you must sympathize. Crypto capital, BTC, you must be sovereign. And so he thinks they're all different forms of I control. I will I will read that. I don't know why, but I, I just got interested by his explanation. Yeah, like, I mean, like, I'd love open invitation to Balaji to come on the show. Be, well, now uh, he's going to block me. Yeah, I don't think he has yet. You have a desire to engage with his views, right? Like, actually, I I just, I just feel like these people don't want to be in a situation where they really have to. Not even from like a debate me sort of like Ben Shapiro versus you know, but just like somebody who isn't already on your team who genuinely wants to sort of dig apart. Like, what what do you mean by this assertion? Like, what are the limits? Well, it's funny that he blocked you. I don't want to spend too much time on this because that (laughs) grants him too much power. But like, it's funny that he blocked you for it wasn't that you tweeted at him, right? You reached out through like an offline connection. And that was enough for him to be like a fucking guy. I mean, that was the most proximate thing. You know, I'm sure I mentioned but it's it's of a piece with these people in general which is that they want to carry out their grievances entirely through twitter right that's what i mean about the parallel panels right they're in great conflict on the internet but then in real in the real world you know it's like these very nice well that was the funniest thing about you know flash from the past the um clubhouse moment where they got chesa budin the san francisco da on there and, you know, complete softball interview where he just walked all over them. I know, exactly. Giving his point of view. Uh, one of your better posts. Thank you. And uh, and then supposedly near the end, you know, David Sachs was going to come in there and really, you know, fuck shit up by, by posing some hard questions to him. But it never happened. It was real like, you know, hold me back, bro. Like NBA fights. I do think David Sachs could have done well. Yeah, I'm sure these guys could. Like, I, I think to no, a degree they... No, those guys were not ready. But David well, we'll, is good. We'll never know now. Uh, until, like, you know triller puts it up he likes to monologue i feel like in the all in have you listened to all in lately not lately but i want to be on record saying i think it's not a terrible show we're very envious they're climbing i mean they're like jason tweeted it's a decent uh, podcast their points of view are another subject but like just they have tons of production yeah no strictly yeah yeah, another time but um every time they um every time they actually are confronted with the object of their derision and uh yeah i'm sure the panels were all very friendly and even that all-in podcast, they obviously clash a lot, but, you know, it's like four rich guys. Nobody is really the left wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, sorry, I'm still impressed that he blocked you just for, for reaching out to, 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 to wanted to talk to it's him. It's going to be like, oh, you shit on him. And I, 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 but that, that was how I, you know, I, I can't ask him. You know, like you always think as a reporter, like, what's the worst that can happen if I just reach out to the guy? And like, to be honest, that is a fairly low end of the spectrum. The other end of it is like, oh, they're going to like publish the emails that I sent, you know, trying right. to talk to them, uh, which does happen uh, not infrequently from kind of unhinged people that you're trying to talk to. Uh, they, they push, you they know, push it Paul on Twitter. Graham is interviewed as, has, Paul Graham has blocked me since 
I interviewed him at the information. So 2014, when you wrote that story that would put the information on the map, uh, <laughs> we, we can link to it in the show description to really stick the knife in as uh, your commitment yeah. to that piece. He has not blocked me, but I unfollowed him because I've, I've done like a Twitter cleanse. I've decided I should only use the app to further my stories and journalistic career. Did you want to uh, talk about Jack Dorsey a little bit? I mean, we're getting a little further from it, but... Sure, sure. Um, Jack Dorsey lost a job and changed his other job's, um, I don't know, parent company objective. I don't know how you how you explain it. In one week, I mean, talk about PR strategy. Yeah, he had a great you Thanksgiving. Know, like, I feel like... How do I change the narrative uh, from the fact that I'm not going to be CEO of... Uh, the social media company I run. So the uh, stories that have come out since about his stepping down was that this was like the long gestating, you know, accomplishment of Elliott management that like when they, right. when they bought their activists um, position a couple of years ago, even though they supposedly reached a detente, like the wheels were still in motion behind the scenes, like to oust him. Well, they got a board seat and they sent you know, growth expectations, right. that which they were I never going to Twitter meet. wasn't going to meet. Right. I mean, nobody expected this. I mean, I don't cover the beat that closely, but it didn't seem like the Twitter reporters were, you know, trying to chase this down. I mean, I'm not in a newsroom anymore, but I didn't get the sense that this was something that super savvy insiders were anticipating. It's just more like we want to let the world know that we're very crypto blockchain first. That's as far as it goes, right? It's like if we're a financial company, then, you know, the future is all about this. And so we need to change our name, which which I actually kind of get. I mean, it's it seems silly. But it's a very influential pool. I mean, clearly there there have been a number, and you probably know more about this than me, but there have been a number of social networks over the years that have used Twitter's graph to try and build out networks, right? I mean, people like steal it. Basically. Sure. I mean, there was the whole live video phenomenon from like 2015. Uh, companies like Meerkat and pa- yeah, Periscope, yeah, yeah. which they bought. And so it's like you have, I mean, this is sort of what we were saying earlier with Zuck, right? If you get a product that works that people want to work, then it can take off. And obviously, they have the audience to to build off of. They just haven't figured out anything that's truly yeah, sort of viral, right? But that's there's a difference between you know monetizing an audience much better and actually growing to a much larger one. Like one is a product issue, the other one is a business issue. And from like a business standpoint, they've been successful in growing their they basically built a business off of telling large brands, look, if you want to be where the conversation is happening, you got to advertise on Twitter. And so like a huge amount of their revenue comes from like Samsung announcing a new phone release or like movie studios pushing out like the release of a new film is like event based advertising. But they they had done a really poor job getting like direct to consumer stuff, you know, like the click based um, advertising that Facebook and Snap and other people are cleaning up on because that's not the way people use Twitter. But they were making a lot of money from it. But again, that's so like, you know, if you look at their finances or like their business over the last couple of years, it's pretty good. I do think I'm, I'm developing this view, but I, I, I think there are lots of sort of random regulations that would make more sense than, you know, anti-monopoly regulation. That's sort of where I've I'm personally building to. And it does feel like we could have a law that says social media companies need to stop maximizing. They can't try to get users to stay on their apps for more than after an hour, they need to start putting up barriers to them to want to stay on. Like they need to disincent, you know, it just like it was like cigarettes or something, you know, just like you put a warning on the packet, you know, there needs to be sort of 
you've been on this for a long time or literally you have to slow down sort of the dopamine hits or whatever. You know, I, I do think there's the, the, so I, my point with the story is obviously maximizing for time spent in the app mm-hmm. can get extreme and they are hacking human psychology and there are things that governments could do to say without breaking up companies or even attacking companies, just say, hey, we don't think as policy people should spend more than an hour a day on social media and they're allowed, but you should discourage them and you're not allowed to hack their brains if they do. Well, China is probably the best example of that right now, right? With esports. Right. They're much more all or nothing, yeah. you know? Yeah. Which is funny that, you know, I guess the app that typifies like the most addictive, just pure dopamine, you know, injecting app is also, you know, built in a country where they have taken the most hardline approach to like certain levels of computer addiction with esports. Does this all connect though to Kevin Roos's piece um, from what was that last week where he was talking about like the need for Silicon Valley founders to try to reinvent themselves or like focus on only future oriented projects uh, to kind of like get their groove back? Yeah, we could talk about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's, that's the, the direct connection between the two, right? It's like, we've seen Jack step aside you know, Mark with the metaverse, I don't know what would like the third thing that would make it a trend, but basically, well, I think everything to do with crypto right now. Well, the Google co-founders, I mean, literally Sergey was founding like flying car companies, you know, they've Yeah, but those guys are weird. I mean, they've been away from the day-to-day for a bunch of years now. Like, you know, Jack and, well, I mean, I guess Jack, I don't, I don't know. That, that, that's a tough comparison, I think. But the, the core idea is that they just want to seem focused on the future rather than as the stewards of the present. Right, because the present sucks. And the hope is that they can... It does it. I, I think this present's good and we need to <laughs> stop saying it sucks, but that's like a very long argument. Okay, Steven Pinker. I, I mean, I, I think <laughs> their, their point is that, you know, for them, they are more hated than they've ever been in their lives right. as executives. So from that perspective, their present sucks. But if they can help craft a future that is, you know, full of the optimism that we were talking about earlier, I mean, you know, that's just a purely kind of cynical aspect of it. I think they, they also just believe in it and want to like, focus their attention and time on it. But that was, that was like the core of his argument, right? Is that like Silicon Valley is looking for things that it can, it can rally behind um, to kind of re-engage the positive spirit that like built the industry and like built their interest in it. Facebook should just shut down for a week and insist that they're never going to come back up and just see what all the like takes would be then. People would still fucking hate. Well, that was the conspiracy theory of like when the the app was down. Right. Remember that that shitty documentary that came out uh, like 10 years ago called A Day Without Mexicans? <laughs> I'm aware of it. Yeah, it was basically like this is how, you know, our economy. Yeah, our labor depends. Yeah. yeah, like our, our country in all its ways would cease to exist because, you know, we all the Mexicans literally it's very. Yeah, I, I don't know how well it would do if it came out now, but like I guess the version of that would be like a day without Facebook. Right. I mean, like what what do you people do? You don't even realize like how which would that benefit them that much? I mean, that was like and all, well, the people fundamentally want it more than they don't. And it would at least reframe sort of what this debate really is. Yeah. I mean, that's, it does sort of feel like there's a sort of shut it all down. You're playing, well, right. And you're playing with fire with that. If you're the company, because at the same time, I mean, and this was a a number of takes that came in after the Facebook outage was that like, they're actually way too powerful. Think about how things cease to function and people couldn't, you know, communicate with their families in India on WhatsApp um, because it wasn't working. Well, it would, it would, I mean, and this goes back to sort of the thing we opened this conversation with, which is just, if it's the case that we're like, 
Like the technologies are inevitable if they work, right? That sort of idea was what we sort of opened up talking about. And the question is, is it because they hack our brains or because they're better in a genuine way and we prefer to use them? And it's sort of a hard debate to have when we have access to the thing that could be hacking our brain, right? So if if Facebook goes away, we spend a month living without it, we do a bunch of studies and people are like, actually, we're happier or we're not. You know what I mean? It is sort of like, I'd like to run the, I mean, I guess we could do it without shutting it down. We just, but I'm sure there's this research now. Now I'm just uh, sort of a junior level uh, psych researcher now realizing this is very testable. But but it, it does feel like, yeah, do do we do we prefer, are we happier with them or, or not? I don't know. This, this has become dumb. What, 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 what do you take No, I would say, I'm why saying? do scientific research and we can just have anecdotal first person columns from reporters talking about <laughs> like, I spent a month without any Facebook. Here's how I felt. Which I feel right. like inevitably those articles always end up saying, I was the same person or I didn't really feel any different. I remember Wired, I think it was Wired a couple years ago, did one where some person tried to live without email for a year or maybe it was the full on fucking internet. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up. But either way, I do remember the conclusion was like, I ended up being the same person I always was. And I mean, part of the problem, and I think this is why you would want to see an experiment with it all shut down is just given that we live in a world where everybody else uses it, giving it up is much more difficult because we're social animals and people shame you for not being easily accessible. But if the technology is just gone, then everyone has to adjust. And maybe that adjustment right. is, is happier right. because you're, than with it. You're, you're just living on the outside of a party if it's just you. Um, right. It would have to be universal. Right. I, I tend to think we're happier with it, but I, I do think uh, TikTok is very addictive and I would uh, like to spend less time on it. But you would be amazed if you take it off your phone, how little you use of it. I mean, you know, there's an example of like, you know, living on the backbone of another platform. Like I only consume TikTok through Twitter. You know, when people post Hmm. a video of it, I'll like, oh. Like you deleted it or you never had it? I had it for like a month. That was, it was, it was killing me. Like I was just spending, <laughs> I should delete it. You're right. Yeah. I would just wake up like at six 30 and just sit in bed until like eight. Um, just going through videos, not entirely right. uh, on TikTok, but yeah, no, I mean, it, it's the problem is that I'm not a happier I person. Do enjoy, I'm the same fucking guy. I enjoy some of them. I do get a little sense of the culture. I like it, but it, it's not deep meaning. You know what I, 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 there, I guess there is some part of me that's like, Oh, there's value in TikTok, but I guess Never, never more on a permanent basis than just like reading a book would have. Do you want to talk about BuzzFeed? Sorry, I, I kind of cut off the TikTok talk, but. I mean, you're the one who needs to have takes. I'm sure I'll have takes, but what's the central observation on BuzzFeed? Well, so BuzzFeed for our listeners um, had its first day of trading uh, on the NASDAQ, actually. So it's a tech company and um, it didn't go very well. Uh, in its, um, I saw somebody was holding a sign on the listing. Thank God we didn't get acquired by Waystar. Did you see that? They had like uh, behind Jonah Peretti. Oh, like some Buzzfeed exec put like that up there. Like just sort of a jokey. I assume he asked the company, or the company told him to do it. And it was meant to make them seem like quirky. So on Friday, in which they had the man, I'm going to fuck this up. But on Friday, there was like a process in which they basically figured out whether or not the investors who had put money into the SPAC vehicle were going to leave their money in there in advance of its first day of trading. And basically a shitload of investors pulled their money out, 
meaning that the initial 200 plus million dollars that were sitting in, you know, the shell company ended up being around like $15 million. Um, so like the cash that theoretically, what did they want? Well, they wanted 200 plus million. I mean, you know, that, that was the cash that was sitting inside this, you know, shell company that, yeah, that's terrible. Right. So yes, they did not get, I mean, obviously it's part of a general trend that's pipes have been right. Where, oh, pipes have been difficult, so getting the... And they didn't have a big pipe, right? That's part of the issue. Because pipes have been bad, right. and then redemptions have been bad. Right. So then you get public with very little... Cash from from, from the transaction. <laughs> cash. I mean, they, they did issue a convertible note. So, you know, there's obviously a lot more strings attached to it than just, like, the cash that comes from a merger. But, um, you know, they do have, I think, like 150 or something million from that note. Uh, but no, like this was not a huge financing event that you would typically see with an IPO. So as far as that goes, like big fucking whiff. But now, you know, it had its first day of trading. It closed down. So that's not great. And it's not a great market right now. Uh, so I don't think it's going to get better anytime soon. Uh, it's going to be pretty rough for them would be my like short term outlook. And I have no idea who would like acquire them. Well, I think the point is that they're going to be acquiring other companies like, <laughs> like, like Jonah's going around doing interviews with Peter Kafka and, you know, the New York times and a bunch of other places, not us. Who would they acquire? I mean, clearly like people have talked about a Vox Buzzfeed merger. Are you up on succession by the way? Yeah. Yeah. I watched it. I watched they could have a merger of equals. Right. You know? Exactly. Um, <laughs> uh, who was he supposed to be? Um, um, Mojo, the CEO, the, I, I assume he's supposed to be an Elon type, but running a very different type of company. I think it's like Elon plus Daniel Eck was my take. I mean, the, the the company I think is supposed to be like, it's a video streaming service, but also has like sports rights and betting. So it's like a mixture of like Spotify and like DAZN and maybe a little bit like DraftKings or Barstool. I don't know. I don't know how. Right. How, it seems like clearly Elon is the... I mean, Elon's not exactly like well, him that, like tweeting think, stuff but, out that would have like material effect on the stock price, right? And doing drugs and sort of being like a great entrepreneur, right? Right. We should uh, anyways. Yeah, we we can have a when the succession finale. A airs. succession episode would be fun. Oh well, yeah, after the finale, we can do um, one. Did you read the New Yorker article? Yeah, on, I read it right before this. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. Well, oh my god! Spoilers, spoilers. Okay, spoilers. But do you think Kendall dies? No. I don't. I just think that would be bad story writing. And they're pretty good about that uh, on the show. So, I mean, I think he's like clearly hit some sort of rock bottom, but like to have one of your central character die. I think the of, Sarah Joe actually, sorry, that's my girlfriend, yeah. uh, was analyzing it. I actually sort of think the opposite, that it would be bad storytelling not to kill him because it would just be like what he's going to be waking up in the water. Just like a total fake out is lame for a show in a in a network, certainly that's supposed to be sort of cool and legit. I don't know. I, I, I guess. I, and they've teased it. Like, I mean, obviously, teasing is almost too weak of a word. I mean, he's flirted with suicide clearly throughout the show. And then symbolically, there's been a lot of suicide uh, stuff. But who would BuzzFeed acquire? I mean, the list is increasingly small. There are companies that they were supposed to be merging with in the past, like Group 9. That's the one with the layers, right? right? right. Do they own... The Dodo or whatever? Yeah, I'm sorry. No. It's the Dodo. It's Thrillist. It's um, now now this news or what now this. Um, yeah, it's it's a collection of sites, like a holding company. Now this, I see way less about them. Well, yeah, because uh, the, the election was, you know. Yeah, I mean, they, they, they were like a big deal at the time because they didn't have a homepage. You know, they existed only as like a media company on other platforms. 
Tom, Tom is the expert in digital media. He used to cover it a lot. What happened to Mike, by the way? Well, they, they went under. I mean, they got acquired by Bustle. Uh, we can talk about that with Brian. The Mike story is actually kind of... An Brian Goldberg. Goldberg. I'm sorry. Come on. I'm sorry. We, we want him on. We right, want him on. Right. Uh, that's not a promise that he's coming on. Yeah. Though. It seemed like he he'll, he'll come on. Um, M- Mike basically ran out of cash after they lost a Facebook uh, video deal and sold desperately and very meekly to Mike for like under $10 million when they were like capitalized. I had a friend who worked there. They seem like the worst. Um, <laughs> no comment because I used to talk to those guys a lot. Um, but... Uh, they flamed out. I mean, it was just a bad business ultimately. And they, uh, you know, their last, they basically were in the way that like, you know, Mad Men, like the firm was entirely reliant on Lucky Strike cigarettes. Hmm. They were hugely reliant on this deal with Facebook for a video show when Facebook watch was like throwing out money left and right. And Facebook canceled their show and that was it. And so they sold to bustle for not a lot of money. Uh, I think they are still a website. Like they do publish things, but they're like a shell of themselves. But yeah, it's it's another one of those Brian Goldberg buys a company you know, like basically off the trash heap uh, situation. So that that was them. So smart. You're not buying. That's smart. If there's any value to them, I mean, he did the same thing with Gawker uh, and I think TBD on whether there's value there. But I feel like they haven't really been cutting through. Well, the Gawker thing is funny to me because I read their articles. Like I think they're good and smart, but it's like you know they also bought this company, The Outline. Remember them. That was Josh Topolsky's site, which also sold for like pennies on the dollar. Like, um, and he works now for, for Brian. Um, but the outline is dead as a site, but basically they relaunched Gawker and like stylistically, it's the same exact thing as the outline. So basically like he bought the outline, shut it down, bought Gawker, tried to relaunch it and just made it the outline, which was already a failed business. So I don't, but but, I mean, obviously the content matters way more than the design. It's, it's more the content is more like. Well, I thought the Gawker content on the outline the was good, but the, the Gawker content. But they're a very different style. Not really. I, I mean, I sort of. Really, I, you think it's like the outline? I see the new Gawker is like very reminiscent of the. I mean, the outline had reporting. There were reporters that I worked with that that came from there. So there's maybe that elements of it, but like the kind of hip and smart takes on any number of things going on in the world. I just think the truly like fiery, like dangerous. This is going to really takes these days would flirt with like fighting with woke people and i don't think gawker wants to do that right well they're definitely not fighting with woke people right they're on the they're team woke yeah more more than which like is so so like that's what the president's party is you're just like very much like on the side of like the dominant culture like what's sort of like cutting about that. That's where the New York Times sits. I don't know. I've read a bunch of articles <laughs> on Gawker that I think are great. Like I thought they they were really well-written pieces, probably written by freelancers. I like the piece about Brian Goldberg, like the whole, uh-huh. like I, they were That's a good day him. one. I mean that, right. They had a strong day one. Um, I read them. I just don't see their reason to exist. I don't, you know, the, the number of sites that BuzzFeed would want to buy is pretty small. And none of them are actively trying to sell themselves to BuzzFeed. So there's Vice, there's Vox, and then there's Group 9. The Group 9 deal has been tried multiple times and it keeps getting abandoned. I think it would be like a complete mess cap table-wise. Um, and then there's Vox, which has no interest in selling. They think they're a much better business than BuzzFeed. Um, they probably want to go public through like, I don't know, this is like a year out of date information. But there was talk about them just pursuing a traditional IPO uh, a year ago. And then Vice. How well can Vox be doing? Like, I just. I, I think they're just a better run business. Just Jim Bankoff, the CEO, is like a more 
uh, responsible spender of money uh, than Jonah was, is what people tell me. So I, uh, yeah, I, that's the argument that people close to the company made at the time. But, you know, like you gotta, like, like eventually you'll have to show your numbers. But back to Jonah and Buzzfeed, like he has wanted to go public for a long time. Like I remember back when I was at the information 2017 or something, he did an, a panel interview with Jessica and me and he was talking about like the value in going public is not just to like prove to yourself that you're a publicly traded company, but like, you know, the virtues of being public are good for any business, which is like showing profit, forecasting numbers. It's so embarrassing how long the, these companies can promise that they're going to go public because every outlet that gets it gets another headline. Mm-hmm. BuzzFeed's thinking about right, going and public. Talk with bankers and right, and then it's just like it never happens. There are no consequences. It's just like, yeah, if I ever start a business, I'm just going to tell people I'm going to go public in two years. Well, it's the, the, the true at the time, you know, get it a jail free card that every journalist well, uses. Was it though? Was in his heart of hearts, you know, true that he said it at the time, but like, I think they, they really, really were. I think they were. I mean, I, I don't know. I never broke any stories about it, so I didn't have good reading on it. And there was lots of disagreement because NBC is their biggest shareholder. And there was huge disagreement at NBC about what the actual value of BuzzFeed was. I mean, there were people I talked to that thought it was worth like, at the time that, you know, NBC valued it at like 1.7 billion post money, there were people inside NBC that thought it was worth like 600 million or something. Hmm. So that whole investment is a fascinating story that no one's really written. What did you, what did you think about, by the way, the BuzzFeed union action as BuzzFeed was de-spacking? I mean, I got, it's a little touchy talking about union stuff because <laughs> I'm in the midst of... I know, that's why I brought it up. That's what's good content. I mean... <sighs> I would say the fact that they haven't gotten their contract ratified yet is probably incredibly frustrating to the union. Like they voted a year and a half ago, you know, to form a union, like the the, the staffers voted for it. So like there's an incredible internal push. Uh, the fact they haven't reached, like we're in negotiations now, I can say that with our owner to figure out a contract. Uh, I think it was like an opportunity for them to publicize the fact that they haven't gotten a contract ratified, but also... I think it kind of maybe overrated. Like, I think they were trying to make some like public demonstration that like, look, this company is doing so well. They're about to go public and yet they're unwilling to strike a deal with its employees. Yeah, that, that, exactly. That's insane. I was like, no, your comp- you need to help your company do well so you can get anything. <laughs> like, so they continue to exist. I don't think the union exists in, you know, competition with the success of BuzzFeed as a company. But I do think if they were trying to sell a message that like, look at these fucking fat cats that are going public now, and yet they're unwilling to meet our meager demands as a union, it's like, yeah, it's not that kind of an IPO, guys. Right. Yes. <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. That, yeah. That's exactly, that's what I wanted you to say. Yeah, it it sort of makes sense when they look, when BuzzFeed looks wealthy, but when they look beleaguered, then it's sort of like, oh man, and their employees give them a hard time? Like, what's this company even worth? I mean, I think that's the least of their problems right now. I think they can deal with that. They've clearly managed to get by even with employees, you know, not having a contract for, it's, it was like over a year that they agreed to, that they voted to unionize. But like, I don't know, to me, like BuzzFeed going public, I use this analogy a lot, but I think it's, follow me with this until this makes sense. But to me, BuzzFeed going public is kind of like when Conan O'Brien hosted The Tonight Show, which is like, it was something that he'd wanted to do for his entire career. (laughs) Like since he was a kid, like watching Johnny Carson, he's like, I really want to host The Tonight Show. And like through an unbelievable collection of events in his life, he actually did 
you know, host a late night show that came on after the tonight show. And then the host of that show left and like, holy shit, they made him the host of the tonight show. And then he got there and it was a fucking nightmare, you know? Right. It was like the ratings were plummeting. Like he was the last person that like the tonight show as a concept has like crumbled. It's no longer this like monolithic cultural institution. It's just like one of many things that now basically exists as like YouTube videos. Um, that's a couple years down the line, but like, so Conan gets there and it's like, he probably cared more about it than anyone else did. And it's useless now. And I kind of feel it's the same thing with Buzzfeed. It's like Jonah's wanted to go public for so long. He thinks it's like a great, you know, and to a degree it is like, it's a great accomplishment for a company to be, you know, traded in that way. And yet like, now what do you do? (laughs) Like you're here and you're now, you know, stuck to the whims of investors and, you know, reporting quarterly and you are having to be compared to much more profitable companies like the New York Times and people figuring out your multiple. You can't wave, you know, like tech, you know, magic dust uh, around your company's mission statement and claim that you should be valued at a higher multiple. There's no media companies that have gone public in the last, I can't even think of the last media company that went public. Like, what do you do now, Jonah? I don't know. It's, it's, it's not, there's no easy answer to it. My, uh, my concluding thought on this is that Hopefully soon we can uh, put to rest uh, my least favorite genre of story, which is when will Ben Smith divest his BuzzFeed shares so that his New York Times column is ethically sound? And uh, have more than two people it, written that? I mean, like who? Well, who it's fucking two cares? is too many. It was Slate. Then, well, yeah, didn't Vice or Gawker did? A I think someone, or, or yeah, yeah, some like yeah. news-oriented site. It just they just drive me insane. It's like, yeah, it's. Also, just, I mean, yeah, the media ethics purity of it are just like, there's so many, I don't know, that's a whole can of worms. Yeah, well, I I hold no share as a newcomer LLC, so I can speak freely about the value of that company. You're you're probably have like, I mean, this is exactly the point. You probably have, clearly it's in your interest that newcomer does well, like even if you don't own shares. I mean, there are all sorts of biases that people have outside of exact shares and like, is he really not going to want BuzzFeed to do well if he doesn't own shares anymore? Like, I don't know. But isn't it, don't you love the point where you're talking to an ex-employee at a company on background and they're shit talking it. And then they're just like, look, I'm a shareholder still. So I would like nothing more than to see this company do well, but it like, it hurts me to see what's going on there right now. (laughs) And it's like, yeah, I'm sure it really hurts you. If you're talking this much shit about it. They think that by, talking shit about it they're gonna get the change they want which will make it i want more every valuable. source to think that by the way i think that's the most pure form of source uh and i never want to disagree i, I, that I notion. think some of them are sincere some, i mean some it's maybe like are. yeah for serious uh, you know serious accusations of wrongdoing and things like that i, I do believe that's the case right uh, a certain number of people are just aggrieved uh, well, I feel like we covered a lot of ground in this conversation. Um, so we'll see, uh, we'll see what makes it all out in the end, but, uh, good, uh, good catching up after a long, sorry about the long hiatus listeners being off for a week and a half, but we're going to go back to our, uh, our regularly scheduled weekly cadence. We're now trying to publish on Tuesdays. We're not swearing up and down yet. We'll, we'll be good about it. We'll be good. We'll try. We're, we're professionalizing, you know, right. Right. And Katie will be back soon too. Uh, so anyway, thanks for listening and we'll see you guys all back here next episode. Goodbye. Silicon Valley. Goodbye. Silicon Valley.
goodbye, 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 goodbye.